Um, I just want to say I am terribly sorry. Uh, when I was talking about Argo, I said Casey Affleck, when in fact the uh, lead actor was Ben Affleck. And for the Edgar Wright film in the Three Cornettos trilogy, it was actually The World's End, which I kept calling it The End of the World, which is a separate movie entirely. So um, thanks to Greg for pointing those out and emailing me about the corrections for that one. Um, I want to say, though, that the pride of that episode was the fact that I did correctly name and date the three ninjas knuckle up. (laughs) (laughs) And so I I take this as a net win, regardless. Uh, Should we we just go ahead and, like, replace our logo with the three ninjas logo or... Just, just call this the Three Ninjas podcast. Watch Three Ninjas. <laughs> Watch Three Ninjas, finally. That'll be our yeah, 100th just, episode. Three Ninjas. That's our, uh, yeah, that's our 100th episode. We watch Three Ninjas. It's a perfect one. And welcome to this week's episode of Watch No Evil. This is Matt. And this is Zach. And today we're going to be putting the B in LGBT. We're reviewing The Babadook, the 2014 Australian horror film. Is this Australian? Yeah. Oh, we did two Aussie weeks in a, in a row. I know, right? I just thought it was, I thought it was British. Nope, this is a, this is a, an, an Aussie horror film. It was produced by uh, Christina Caton, Christina Moliere, and it was directed i believe by jennifer kent yes uh, who is also the screenplay writer and who wrote the original movie uh that it's based on which was called monster which she also uh, refers to as the little babadook this movie also like cargo is based on a previous movie by the same director not the same director as cargo but the same director from short film to full-length film so I guess that happens in Australia a lot. <laughs> well, this it's really interesting because there's so much about this this movie that connects to other things that we've we've done. Like when she's watching the TV and the old woman is rising from the bed, that is her watching the Mario Bava film Black Sabbath, mm-hmm. which was also based on or inspired by some of the German expressionist films that that this movie draws inspiration from. So there's a, a lot of nice connectivity there. Yeah, we should we should probably watch a Mario Baba film sometime. They look, I, we have to. They look like they're pretty good, so. Mm-hmm. I love the, the particularly surreal feel that all of his films have, especially in the way that they do color and lighting. And uh, I think that this film also does an exceptional job of lighting the film. It, it reminds me, in a way, the same way that we talked about The Conjuring, there's so much in, in the lighting of this movie that connects to the theme of the movie, just the way that even when they're outside, it's it's really overcast and it's it's gray. And the way that they light the actual actors in this film, it gives them almost like this grayish undertone to their skin, which to me is sort of pseudo reminiscent of that black and white German expressionist era that it's it's clearly trying to draw from. Yeah, I think like you know, like we, uh, Sleepy Hollow was the other one where we were referencing Mario Baba, and that 
kind of had a similar feel to it, where it is this very gothic kind of feel, as we talked about a lot there, but also had this mm-hmm. this like really washed out gray, dark kind of tone to it. And I think that this has a similar thing. I think the the really like the brightest part of it is at Sam's cousin's birthday party, like when he pushes her out of the mm-hmm. treehouse and. I don't know Certainly. If, that, if that means anything, but it's, you know, they're outside and it, yeah, overall it's like really dark. It's one of the few times in the movie where they're physically outside and, you know, we, we say sort of that they are outside when she's driving the car, but even in that, the way that they do shadowing and the way that she's driving down a street that has tree coverage, it still has this sort of claustrophobic feel to it and the the way that they shoot so close to her face and it's like you know she's in a car you know she's driving but it makes it still feel like she is inside the world we don't get any like you know panoramic shots of the outside world you know typically we'll get like a a long shot of the car driving down the road and so we'll get to see this like uh you know rustic rural urban backdrop or you know um residential rather is is really what i'm getting at uh where we actually get to see signs of other life and in this case it's maintaining that claustrophobia even when we know that they are not in a claustrophobic setting and actually everything about this movie it feels really really tight and really condensed when they're doing the shots with the other woman the neighbor there's always like really close up on her Especially when speaking, we get a lot of the face shots and we get this very boxy image. Uh, and I think that that goes along with sort of the the theme of, of depression that the movie sort of takes on. And that like overwhelming closeness and, and sort of negative intimacy that is associated. Yeah, I think going along with that theme, uh, I think there are two ways that you could go about portraying uh, a theme of depression in a cinematic kind of way and that's one this in in this way where you get this kind of like boxy closed off kind of feeling or you could go the opposite or you can you can really like take these this wider approach um and just just to make the characters seem like more of like a small part of things like they're like like they're a microcosm of what is really going on the agoraphobia versus claustrophobia right dichotomy the you know making of smallness by uh using shot composition to physically portray them as as small and force that perspective versus the claustrophobic and and uh, they do the claustrophobic i think really well right and i think to, to tie into cinematic the kind of camera work that goes in here also with like sudden scene changes they they do there's so much jarring effect in that they'll have like there have there's some scenes that last a matter of seconds where you just get a little glimpse of like what happened in this time frame and it's and sometimes it'll be like nothing really that significant and then it'll suddenly shift to oh here's the next day or whatever and they have some of the sound design matches that and some of the soundtrack matches that too where you'll just have this like buzzing sound going on in the background which we may talk about later and then it'll suddenly cut out when when uh, Amelia does something or it'll, mm-hmm. it'll just switch to the next scene and it stops suddenly with the scene change and I think there is this jarring sudden change is almost to like give you this this effect that Amelia might be feeling of like losing track of time or just 
you know, not kind of having these these gaps. Mm-hmm. Which losing track of time and sort of the way that time can slip away from you is is really symptomatic of depression, especially when you have the type of people um, that experience it in the way that it's showing Amelia experiencing it, which is she lacks the sort of energy to clean. And so you see her her house getting dirtier and disgusting, and that's represented by when the you know the cockroaches start coming out of the wall, and then the fast juxtapositions to this almost like manic cleaning phase, and juxtaposing those with the way that there will be endless nights of no sleep, and it feels like even when she says that you know she's not getting any sleep. It shows a lot of shots of her, you know, lying in bed and it's that sort of constant wokenness where the the sleep is not meaningful but rather it is the inability to get up and and be active. And I think that it's well represented in the claustrophobic shots as well because we know that part of the theme of this movie is her own inability to admit that she has an issue and that she is repressing all of those emotions. And, uh, you know, repression is is that very intimate sensation where everything is bottled up really tight and deep down inside. And so we get to see that in the physical composition of the shots. Because I feel like with Amelia, a lot of the shots, at least when we are supposed to be seeing the movie through Amelia's perspective, they're very tight. They're really close up. Versus when we see them from Samuel's perspective, where we do sort of get these fuller body shots of her as this sort of imposing or scary figure. And and we get to see, you know, Samuel almost always as like a full body shot. We never see the the same level of closeness in his face as we do with uh, Amelia. And I think that that's part of the repression aspect as well. What comes to mind for me when you describe that like kind of close in shot is like when she's looking at the TV like, so they, they do this a few times where they, they're sitting in front of the TV and you'll get like that zooming in on the TV as if you're, you know, looking at it from her perspective and you just, it, you get this kind of like closed in feeling mm-hmm. when, when they do that shot. And then when they show Sam watching TV, it just like, it just shows him in the same room as the TV and like the TV's on, <laughs> like when he's watching his magic DVD. <laughs> yeah. It, it shows him watching the the movie and it, does show Amelia watching, but there's a a significant amount of interaction visually between Amelia and the TV. And that's because it's trying to also tie in uh, Amelia's depression and the inability to do things with the mundaneness of the advertisements that they show on TV, as well as the German expressionist films that show up on the television. So it's, Mm -hmm. it's this simultaneous, like, mundaneness and um the outpouring of emotion because one of the uh the facets of of german expressionism is that all of the emotions are visually represented on screen they are they are outward they're they're shown um it's a it's a matter of drudgery really which Mm -hmm. is really interesting i think yeah and and you do definitely get her expressing emotions a lot more towards the end of the film Rather than at the beginning, she just seems very just kind of like, uh, what's that, like run down and just like, you know, for sure, just unable to express. And then as the Mm -hmm. film goes on, she (laughs) starts having more like outbursts towards Samuel. Uh, And Mm -hmm. it's almost like a manic depressive kind of thing because like she'll get into, 
these these modes of like screaming and you hear and you hear her voice change which is another kind of sound design thing that's really interesting yeah her her voice actually goes much deeper which most most people mm-hmm. do when they are yelling and trying to intimidate in a way it's just kind of an animal instinct uh mm-hmm. the but, full force of the throat right but it has a huge a huge impact <laughs> in those moments and and then mm-hmm. it'll be like in the same scene where oh is where she she tells Samuel well if you're hungry then why don't you eat shit and so she yells at him and then he just goes and, and like starts crying in his room because that's obviously upsetting to a child and she immediately comes into his room and you know, she's back to her normal voice and, oh, I'm sorry, I didn't mean to say that and all that. And mm-hmm. then, like, I think within another, like, 30 seconds, she's yelling at him about something else. So it's kind of this yeah. this boomeranging between madness and her repressed kind of emotional self. Yeah, it's she's she's sort of stuck uh, in the stages of grief as a, as a loop mm. moving between denial and... And anger and depression and just sort of interchanging between those. And obviously the the idea of depression in this movie is so closely tied with grief. Right. I think that the type of depression in this film is not, it's not like clinical depression. I think it's depression as a stage of grief and, you know, the five stages of grief that you kind of, you, you hit a few right there when you were saying that. Yeah, it's not a process that is... Um, as linear as uh, the stages of grief would make you believe. <laughs> mm-hmm. It is much more uh, circuitous. And I think that this movie uh, demonstrates that that nature of the boomeranging, like you said, where it's moving back and forth. And, you know, it, it's one of those things where when you're watching the movie as a psychological horror movie and knowing who the Babadook is, it really sort of betrays the tone of the film. In terms of that depression um, metaphor, especially because as I was watching the film, I was like, wow, this is not a metaphor for depression. This is just depression. It is just straightforward showing it. I think that this movie could almost be on the same, you know, playing field as a, a normal drama movie, even without the, the Babadook element. It could be as, you know, viscerally terrifying as it is without the supernatural. Just in the way that it portrays that depression and her personal descent into madness, and then the way that Samuel sort of brings her out of the madness as well. Mm-hmm. Besides the Babadook, obviously, like this, this would not be a horror movie without the Babadook character. And it could easily be omitted. Really, the only reason to have it is for metaphorical purposes. And it, the the inspiration for this movie was the uh, director's, one of the director's, like, single mother friends had a child who was, like, obsessed with being uh, scared of, like, this one monster in this, this book that uh, he was read to at night, kind of like The Babadook itself. So that's, it's just, like, kind of like a plot device almost, and... I feel like it's really not a horror movie otherwise. Well, I don't know. That's the thing. I feel like it could be a psychological thriller without the Babadook because, I mean, if you took out the sort of like pseudo-possession side of it, if you if you had Amelia still kill the dog and still try to hunt down Samuel and Samuel sort of thwart her, I think that it could follow the same sort of train because to me, 
it feels like The Shining, right? Yeah, yeah. It's it's kind of like, I mean, it's definitely definitely a horror movie. Don't get me wrong. I, I mean, like the Babadook being what it is. Like if if you omit the Babadook being like the representation of her depression from her husband dying while she was in labor with Samuel, and therefore she has resentment for Samuel as her child, then <laughs> which you, it's you, like you why? Get a horror movie. <laughs> Yeah, 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 yeah. I, I understand what you're saying, and I would suppose that even my own comparison to The Shining would support your point, because there is a significant supernatural element to The Shining as well, but I I was just saying that with this movie, there is so much of this domestic terror to it mm-hmm. in the way that Amelia treats Samuel, and I mean, it's it's so interesting because the film does this amazing job at the beginning of setting up Amelia as a sympathetic character. Mm-hmm. Like when we were first watching it and uh and I literally said to you, "Man, I I feel for her. I get it. Like mm-hmm. I understand totally because it, it's one you're being weighed on by this this feeling of grief at loss, but then also, you know, this outstanding depression which is a Truly a separate issue from actually being, you know, resentful of Samuel. And then you, on the top, on top of that, have to also maintain a, a child who is in some ways in the film shown as troubled. But as much as I think that, you know, I, I feel for Amelia, even throughout the film, I still feel for her too, because as much as it's a, a metaphor for depression, it's also showing the societal uh, view of depression from the outside by showing Amelia's sister, who is just not understanding mm-hmm. at all. She's, you know, why don't you talk about it? Why don't you get over it? And it's it's one of those things where it, there is a little bit more nuance than just telling someone, just be happy. And the way that the other women talk about her as sort of this, like, broken person who is disadvantaged. And, and so there's this, like, view of the unwell that is also dramatically represented in the film. And I think that that shows how much someone can undergo when uh, dealing with these sort of circumstances. It makes the claustrophobia worse when you feel like not only are you trapped in the glass box, but people are watching you from the outside. Mm -hmm. And and you get kind of some glimpses into this, what's the right word? Kind of, I guess claustrophobia is as good a word as any. Uh, with her like constantly grinding her teeth and like she's rubbing her temples a lot of the time, and uh, they do have her like pull out her tooth later. I don't know what the implication is with that, but I I got the impression that like she's kind of like nervously grinding her teeth, or just like, uh, or she's not she's not grinding her teeth. That's Samuel that does that. She's like holding her jaw like as if it hurts from grinding her teeth at night, which is a sign of like stress and uh, mental (laughs) unwellness. (laughs) Yeah. I I sort of thought of it like as I guess I didn't read it that way. I I sort of saw it and I was just like, it's supposed to be almost like cavity like and is a representation of the self. And there is a rot in the tooth that is painting her just as there is a rot in her soul, which is a depression in the Babadook. Yeah. That, that could be too. That's a that's a good reading of that. It's 
a little more in depth than <laughs> what I was what I was thinking. Oh, I was gonna say because it's with the sort of exorcism of the tooth that the true Amelia is unleashed at the end, and it's the, that was like sort of the the like final straw that like she rips out the tooth and then she's the the part of her that was normal and motherly is gone completely. Yeah, that could be. I don't know. I so I think that. I mean, grasping at straws here zach it's you know it's up to interpretation right there is well that's what's great about this movie is like she might just not brush (laughs) well yeah can we just talk about how she rips that tooth out with her like her finger she just takes it with two Mm -hmm. fingers and rips it out (laughs) she's got she's got some mad grip strength uh anyways there, there are these there are these themes that are clearly at play here you know, with like child abuse and mental health and, and, and depression being part of that. Uh, but there's so much that is up for interpretation. Like what what is pushing her to become more and more irritable throughout the film? Is it is it uh, Samuel's behavioral issues? Is it her just, just because she's not dealing with her mental health issues that they're becoming worse and worse? And I think that those things are up for interpretation depending on uh, how you see it. Well, I mean, just as much as we've talked about her as, as the mother, she's also sort of uh, on a trajectory in audience minds from the hero of the film to the villain of the film. And then Samuel goes from being the villain of the film because we see him and hate him and, uh, you know, he's terrible. And then over the course of the film, you start to put the pieces together that it's like, okay, he's acting out in this way because he never receives attention from her because of her depressive issues. And he also still has this undying love for her and ultimately, you know, saves her at the end of, of the movie through, you know, a child's love. It's a, it's a reverse Harry Potter moment, Mm -hmm. you know? Yeah, no, I, I definitely have, (laughs) that was one of the things I want to talk about is that they, the transformation of these two characters throughout the movie, they really do take that flip where uh, it, and it's kind of like you're viewing them as, as an outside force, which we really are as, as movie viewers. And if you notice towards the beginning of the movie, we get more of the scenes that take place outdoors. So it's almost like you're, you're taking this, um, what's the opposite of introspective, Almost voyeuristic in a way. Yeah, that, yeah, that's a good way of putting it. And then as the film goes on, you get more scenes in their house and you get this more introspective kind of um, inside perspective view of what is going on here. And you then that's when you start to turn towards, oh, maybe things aren't uh, as they seem. And I think that's another theme that we get a lot. Uh, Samuel's magic video has that line of uh, nothing in my hands, nothing in my hands, and then something about, you know, uh, things are not always as they seem. And Mm -hmm. I think that is a a huge thing. They have, she's reading him the Big Bad Wolf uh, story in the beginning of the movie, and that's the whole sheep or uh, wolf in sheep's clothing idea. And they do show the Big Bad Wolf, like, cartoon later. And then there's Mm -hmm. also, like, a lot of mask imagery uh, so it's, it really supports this this idea that things aren't as they seem. And we do get that revealed to us, as you said, that with the kind of character role flips between 
uh, Samuel and Amelia. Like in the beginning, mm-hmm. Samuel is like Caillou levels of like I I hate this child <laughs> just because of oh the behavior yeah. <laughs> and it's like this- I mean I. He's so bad. Yeah, I haven't it, seen a child that annoying in a film since Tum Tum in 1992's Three Ninjas. <laughs> we, we both had our jokes on that one. <laughs> we had those ready and loaded. Uh, this is a highly produced podcast. Uh, <laughs> what were they saying? Shit. <laughs> Oh, uh, the perspective, uh, outside perspective, character right? Switch. Yeah, and and yeah, we're both both of us at the beginning. Like I'd seen this movie before, and still, both of us at the beginning were like, oh, "Samuel's the worst." Like you just, there's just so many things that he does wrong right at the beginning of the just movie. Viscerally terrible, right? Because of the perspective that you you get on it, and then, mm-hmm. um, and it's obviously it becomes, or it becomes obvious that. He's behaving in this way because of Amelia's um, not not so much complacency, but because of her um, lack of like loving mothering that she does be mm-hmm. due to her depression from assumingly from her yeah. her husband passing away. An unintentional withholding, really. Yes, and that's I mean that, that's hinted at a lot through the movie. It's not really hinted at; it's like just straight up shown. <laughs> mm-hmm. Uh, and that kind of brings me to where I think since this is open for interpretation, what, what is the Babadook? What, what is the Babadook to you? It's, it's interesting. I I think that it is, um, sort of a, a truer nature. It's funny because I didn't start thinking about sort of these ideas of, you know, id and ego and, and super ego and, and such, um, until sort of digging a little deeper into the German expressionist ideas, but uh, it, there is something very Germanic about him uh, as a monster, and that I think that really he is a creation of Amelia, and I think that the creation of him is sort of the internal idea of her, and we I get that sense because we never see the Babadook through the lens of anyone but Amelia, mm-hmm. just like Samuel never gets to see the Babadook. Even even like at the end of the movie where she's, you know, screaming into the blackness and the house is shaking and we see the Babadook like as he's rising up um for a hug, which there's a there's a a nurturing imagery with that that I'll talk about later, but um, it's sort of implied that Samuel doesn't see or interact with him ever. And in fact, when he's like throwing Samuel around the room, it's invisible. And we only see it have those invisible powers when it's using them on Samuel. And and then at the end, he asks, will I ever get to see it? And she says, no. So for me, the, the Babadook is a creation of Amelia. And it is a physical manifestation of that dark nature that is in her it is not only the grief but it is also the anger and you know at the end of the movie it's sort of the there's this you know everything's fine idea and she's able to when it jumps at her she's able to like calm it and then we see her through its eyes and to me that's where it's really sort of the the true nature 
coming through. That this is Amelia, it belongs to Amelia, and it was created in the car crash. I think that it's sort of implied that um, it was created in the car crash and born with Samuel. I think we agree on most things here. <laughs> uh, yeah, because like when, when it does come at her in the basement at the end, she then kind of like talks it down as if talking herself down. Kind of like, okay, mm-hmm. it's okay, it's okay. Like, it's just me and that kind of thing. And I think that that comes after when she's talking to those the child services people mm-hmm. at the end when it's Samuel's birthday. It's like right before his birthday party. And... Samuel mentions to these child protective services people that it's his first actual birthday party. And they're like, wait, mm-hmm. you've never had a birthday party for your child before? And she, oh, it's first birthday party on the day. And they're like, oh, that's kind of odd. And then she tells them, yes, my husband died uh, while he was driving him to the hospital, driving me to the hospital and blah, blah, blah. That's the first time where she she actually is the one to say it, and there is this mm-hmm. expression on her face as if she is accepting, and there is this air of acceptance in that. And mm-hmm. I think that is what gives her. That's how you know it's all right, because it yeah. it gives her the ability to control it, to keep it in the basement, uh, and and to still have it, because that's uh, I think a very big statement on mental health uh, issues and grief, right? And grief is it is. Yeah. You you can deal with grief, but you know it's it it is scarring. It's terminal. Yeah, it's not it's, it's not curable. Right. It, it may feel like it goes away, but it's not. It's not gone, and that's mm-hmm. that goes along with the you can never get rid of the Babadook idea, but you can contain it and you can deal with it. Yeah, for so. sure. Yeah, it's it it speaks to the you know thing that I said earlier about the circuitous nature of of. Of grief, it's never a linear path. It's not um, lack of grief or no need for grief, and then you go through the stages, and then you hit cured, and you never experience it again. It's still something that is there, but is something that is controllable, or it is something that can be placated, or you know how to handle it. So with those ideas, I want to get your take on feeding it worms. So... Before we get to that, actually, can I just say what I think the Babadook is? <laughs> yeah, of course. You should have. Uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. I mean, I, I, I agree in a lot of ways. Um, just you, you said that it is Amelia's creation, and that's definitely evidenced by the fact that she says she has dabbled in writing kids' books before, and uh, it's heavily implied that she is the one that wrote the Babadook book. Uh, there are mm-hmm. actually a couple of scenes where she has like some ink on her fingertips. So it's kind of like hinting at that. Mm-hmm. And and then the fact that when she is like purging the Babadook, like after Samuel, like kind of helps her through uh, that like, yeah. kind of fit, she vomits ink. So it's, it's very clear that, okay, this is, <laughs> this is That's uh, great. her, her literary creation. Yeah. It's, it's a really nice, touch to it i actually never considered it being ink and you know i've i've watched other people talk about this movie and it's always through the perspective of it just being like this black bloody vile like bile that she's you know uh ejecting from her that is supposed to be releasing the possession of the babadook but to actually call it ink is i think really um 
astounding. Oh, and I, I like that a lot. That is, I didn't even consider it to be like the actual <laughs> possession. Like it, it's not like some conjuring, like in, in the conjuring when she like vomits up the, basically the demon. Uh, I think it's, it, it just looks so inky and like thick and it's, Maybe it's not intended to be. I don't know. Uh, but that's how I saw it. And mm-hmm. yeah, I, I think the Babadook, I actually think that the Babadook is kind of like, it's obviously related to her, her grief for her husband, but I think it's more representative of her resentment for Sam, uh, just because of mm-hmm. what the Babadook book says with um, the more you deny, the stronger I get, let me in under and I'll get under your skin and it does end up like kind of possess. It, it's not really a possession because it's always been there. I guess consuming is a better right. word. Yeah. It, it, the reason that I get possession from it is because it has sort of a mirror to the conjuring where the Babadook is on the ceiling above her and then it dives into her mouth and it's sort of mm-hmm. that mouth open, eyes rolled back, sort of take over. And I would say... You know, it's that idea of um, infestation, oppression, and possession that she goes through. And that's, you know, something from The Conjuring. The infestation of grief, the oppression of grief, and then the total takeover. And in in your case, you know, it's the infestation, that kernel of thought that says you hate your son. And then to the actual start uh, oppression of Amelia uh, as, you know, a positive force and then total takeover, you know? So yes, I agree with your assertions. Yeah. There's just, there's just a, like an overwhelming amount of evidence of, you know, Samuel basically being abused and neglected. And, you know, he, he comes in after she's been drugging him. She obviously is giving him too much of this tranquilizer and he comes in and he's like, oh, my stomach's upset and like, I just need food. Like, there's no food in the house and I'm hungry. And that's the, the scene that I talked about earlier. And, oh yeah, and then he, he like has his cry for help and he tells the child services people about the drugs she's been giving him. It's like, yeah, it's like a cry for help. Mm-hmm. And then there is this moment, there are so many moments where Samuel's saying, oh, I love you, mom. And oh, I'd do anything to protect you. And uh, she just kind of like shrugs it off. And then there's one time Samuel says, I love you, mom. And she says back to him, she says, me too. She like Han Solo's her <laughs> child. <laughs> and it's very heavily implied. Well, it's not heavily implied. It's just kind of like an off the cuff thing. She just, it just seems like, oh, okay. So she doesn't want to say that she loves him. Yeah, for yeah. sure. And, and then there is, there's that moment in the car, which people have made a meme out of with the, why can't you just be normal? And what you don't see in the meme is when Samuel looks right behind Amelia right after she says that and he says, get out. And then this, the the scene after that, he's talking to Amelia about how he doesn't want her to let the Babadook in. Mm-hmm. And that, that was kind of like a moment of like, to me, it's just like the Babadook seems to be related, related to those moments where she has just... A, aggression towards Samuel. So to me, yeah. it, it just seems like that's really what it's about. And that the, um, I don't know, that just seems like the primary function of the Babadook to me. And then like the, the whole like depression and grief over her husband is just kind of like the fuel for that. I, I get what you mean. And I think that it, it, 
uh, is important um, to the actual story, and we really get the sense of that, the scope of it, at what to me was the intersection point of their characters' journeys, um, which is when they're <laughs> in the car and she yells at him, why can't you be normal? And he screams. Mm-hmm. And then she screams, and then he looks above her and a little bit to the right and yells, get out, because that's you know when they then are uh, attacked Mm-hmm. "Quote unquote" by the Babadook, and that's that's really where that flip happens. So I I totally agree. It, I do think it is resentment, um, and I think that it's it, it's grief, but you know it could also be an element of survivor's guilt. Like, why did we survive um, versus you know him? Because mm-hmm. that's that's always part of it too. And I think that she takes you know a personal responsibility or a personal failing for the loss of her husband, because you can't blame Samuel for her husband's death. It's not his fault. And that's, that's the thing. I think that there is an element of projection onto him as, as you know, is the case in a lot of these, you know, situations where parents are resentful of their children. It is a, a matter of projection of things that they don't like about themselves, because what was the last thing that her husband said to her? I don't remember. <laughs> uh, it was it was about um, her and, and, and Samuel. And I think that she assumed that he, her husband, was talking to Samuel in those final moments rather than to her. Which yeah. is, is sort of almost like a, a matter of jealousy, too. That he spent his last seconds, you know, speaking to their unborn child and paying attention to him rather than, you know, paying attention to the road and, and to keeping them safe. And so I think that there's this whole idea of, of projection there too. Absolutely. Mm-hmm. But the okay. worm, Zach. But the worm. I was just actually, I was just getting back to that. So a thought just occurred to me because there are, whenever they show the Babadook, there's kind of like this insect, like almost like a cicada kind of like noise going on in the background. And then when, mm-hmm. uh, when Amelia is, all irritable sometimes they have that noise in the background and then there is that one there's that one scene in her bedroom where uh it it's like the babadook is supposed to have possessed her and then uh samuel like wets his pants because he's so afraid of her there is that that noise in the background and i was like thinking this this insect kind of sound imagery that's going on maybe the worms are like they've she's like turned back the clock and sent them to like the larva phase and like mm. she's reduced the grief to its infancy i don't know <laughs> that's my best guess yeah sure i mean there is a lot of insect imagery um in in the movie as a whole and i think that it is sort of used to me it, it was almost like a a kafka-esque representation in a way um because we see the the cockroaches coming out of the wall and we are immediately repulsed by them and that's just the the nature of of humans and cockroaches but we also see that amelia collects insects at the beginning of the movie she uh has all of these insects uh she or samuel i'm not sure who the actual collector is has all of these insects in these um you know glass displays uh on on their uh counter 
uh, right before, you know, uh, Samuel breaks the mirror, we see them. So we see these, like, interesting sort of insects that are trapped in glass. And I think that it's it's part of the, like, naturalistic idea of of voyeurism looking into the glass and then also the claustrophobia therein. But that's a, mm. a different thing. And so we almost get this, like, Kafka-esque transformation of her as movement to this, like, repulsive monster that that the um babadook also represents because the babadook is clearly a, a a reference to nosferatu as well this sort of like parasitic vampiric um the monster that is 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 feeding off of her darkness and it's able to thrive and then it it feeds off of her and off of the the sort of grossness of the cockroaches and the repulsion and then we go to the end of the movie and she's feeding it worms and we see before this her gardening and so it's supposed to be this idea of like life and growth because a healthy garden is one that contains worms because obviously worms are used for um, nurturing the soil that allows things to grow they're you know good for it and so it's almost like she's she's feeding the the babadook that that resentment that grief these worms as this symbol of of healthiness or trying to return it to a place of natural health return it to nature in a way and so it sort of represents her now being able to actively feed the thing to keep it healthy um rather than sort of ravenous and um you know unstoppable that's how i interpreted it yeah, that, I, I like that better than my off-the-cuff kind of <laughs> forced interpretation. Um, I, I mean, it's, I a, it's a weird one. Well, it's, yeah, it's kind of like, a, I mean, you could go with, like, the whole, you know, worms and, like, rotting kind of idea if you really wanted to. That's very common in horror movies, but I don't think that's really where this, where this is going. I didn't yeah, even notice that But I like the they, idea of the worms as healthy in this. Yeah, no, I, I, I would more lean towards that. Uh, than unhealthy and i i didn't notice that they collected insects at the beginning i didn't i guess i didn't catch that yeah there's also a poster of a of a magician on the wall yeah so yeah so you kind of hinted at like that's where the babadook comes from like that that kind of like nosferatu kind of idea and if you look at and the top hat is is the magician right you can tell like let's say let's just assume that she's the one that made the Babadook character for the Babadook book. Uh, it's, it seems like she took the inspiration from the magician. Uh, mm-hmm. and, and like Samuel is doing that magic trick at the beginning of the movie for her, where he's wearing the top hat in the cave. And it it's like writers or artists create, they sometimes subconsciously take inspiration from their past experiences like you know matt's a composer <laughs> matt knows this this well I'm sure. i am where you'll write something you'll go wait that's already been written this is this is a piece of music i heard like two weeks ago <laughs> i know i've done that before uh and what? so there, no, there's <laughs> never definitely of, not intentionally every once in a while all of matt's ideas are completely original uh, <laughs> let, let that be on the record Anyways, uh, that does happen <laughs> to artists, and that's kind of like the idea that's going on here is that she's taking these <laughs> this, these images that she sees and, and making this character out of that. 
bring bringing it back to like what you mentioned at the beginning of just the atmosphere being an LGBT icon. Oh yeah. <laughs> Yeah, let's talk about that for half a second here. Uh, <laughs> do, you, do you have any idea why that might be besides that Netflix had it classified as an LGBTQ uh, like iconic film? I, I, I don't know why they would have done that. No, I can't imagine how that would have came to be. But the thing was, it sort of became a meme. And then it was showing up at pride festivals everywhere. It was showing up in like political campaigns and slogans and people in a really funny sort of ironic way, people and like endorsed the, the Babadook or, or used him as like a supportive figure of pride. Like he became uh, for a, a while, sort of this like symbol that was um, pro LGBT, which I thought was, hilarious how people took it and just ran with it the metaphor extends into the real the world. metaphor extends yeah yeah so do you want to do some questions you know i do this is my favorite part of the podcast when he says that he means that it's his least favorite part of the podcast. <laughs> it's really not it's one of my favorite parts i love i love being quizzed on things oh, that I are like fun do. and not like actually being quizzed because that sucks. But that, in this Matt, case, I'm just like, yeah, test my knowledge. This all started because I wanted, because I knew you would have fun with being like tested. You're, you would have fun with having your knowledge on the thing tested because you've seen that mm-hmm. movie so many times. Uh, and now it's just, I think, you know, a lot of our friends who, who listen have grown to really like this, this part of <laughs> the episode. So got to keep doing it, right? So that being said, today's trivia is brought to you by Campbell's Potato and Glass Shard Soup. <laughs> Matt, Matt, have you ever been eating your potato soup and thought there aren't enough glass shards in it? Um, you know, Zach, I have, but tell me more. How well, can I get more glass shards in my potato soup? You can soup? get more glass shards by, one, <laughs> getting a can of ragu, smashing on the ground, getting the ragu up with a rag and throw that rag in the garbage and then pick up the shreds of glass and put it in your soup. <laughs> or you can just buy Campbell's potato and glass shred soup. <laughs> what the hell? <laughs> so truth be told, I couldn't figure out a name, like a, a pun. We're going <laughs> to get sued by Campbell's. Uh, I hope so. That's how, no, that's how we blow don't. up. <laughs> Why would you what would get us that? more listeners than having a lawsuit with Campbell's? Come on. <laughs> uh, this is a reference between... to the movie, just uh, yes. for legal reasons. Reference to the movie yes, when there's flashcards the in the soup. So, here we go. The phrase Baba Duke means uh, he is coming for sure in what language? I'm going to go with Finnish. It's actually Hebrew. Oh, really? Oh, that's with... interesting. Which is the same origin for the name Samuel. It's interesting that it um, ties so well with uh, the anagram for bad book. Yeah. I mean, that, that they that's... found something that works in both Hebrew and as an anagram, I mean. Okay, next question. The director of what movie said that The Babadook is the most terrifying film he has ever seen? Um, I, I, I don't know. James Wan? Uh, it was William Friedkin, and he's the one who directed The Exorcist. Oh, yeah. I wouldn't have thought of William Friedkin. Yeah, I, I wouldn't have either, considering... I, I consider The Exorcist to be more frightening than this, but... 
Uh, me too, actually. This is more. I I, I would guess William Friedkin has children. <laughs> yeah, I could see if if you have children that this would probably be the more uh, terrifying. Although The Exorcist has everything to do with children too, so I don't know. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then you, this is the last question that I have, uh, and you, you already kind of mentioned it. <laughs> I wrote the the film of which horror film director appears on the TV during the the like TV dream sequence scene, and you you already have said it's Mario Bava. It's so Mario Bava. That's given away. But do you know Black what Sabbath. movie? Black Sabbath, right? So Black Sabbath. You heard it here, folks. Matt knows his horror movies. <laughs> well. Thank you, everyone, for listening to this week's episode of Watch No Evil Babadook Edition. I'm Matt. And I'm Zach. And we'll catch you next week. <laughs>